Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Joining us now is Brian Levitt, global market strategist over at Invesco. Brian, I was thinking back to a conversation we had several months ago, and you referred to yourself as a FOMO guy, someone who wanted to buy these tech names when everyone else was calling them just a bubble and a rally that wouldn't sustain itself. Brian, where are you now on that call, given that a lot of people are starting to say, OK, it's a bull market, we might have to live with it, but perhaps we can look elsewhere. Are you looking elsewhere? Yeah, I think you, you start to look elsewhere, because, and that's actually healthy. The market is broadening. It's it's moving into other more value-oriented parts of the market, the, the cyclical names, smaller caps. So it's not just the, the very you know narrow market that you saw, call it March, April, May. You're actually getting a sign from markets that uh, this is healthier and there's more participants. And so far, the, the earnings for the value-oriented companies have been quite good. Brian, are things getting less bad, or is the outlook for earnings actually improving? Well, I think that things are moderating. I mean, that's what you would expect in this part of the cycle. But I think what a lot of investors miss is that the market priced it last year. I mean, you know, 11 months ago, we were down 9% So uh, in a month, So, uh, or 13 months ago, I should say. So that was a, a market that... Um, had already assessed what was likely to be a, a, a weak economic environment because of all of the tightening. And yet the economy has been more resilient than many expect. I think where people worry a bit is the valuations on the broad market, but that is in a, a handful of names. And, and you start to think about this broadening out, the names that have not been bid up are starting to participate more again, which is healthy. you got to participate, Brian Levitt. But I would suggest what you've got to do is extend your timeline. Where's the new Levitt terminal value? I mean, it used to be seven years, five years. But if I'm going to buy Apple here or all these other fancy stocks, do I have to extend out my terminal value to justify acquisition of those shares now? Well, some of those names are trading at at quite elevated valuations. So you want to be you know, a little bit um, cautious in the near term. But yeah, I mean, if you're thinking about the the structural themes that these companies are, are taking advantage of, those are long term stories. So you, know, you think about the AI trade, you get a, a, a bit of euphoria around that AI trade. I mean, we saw that in the late 90s, too, with some names around the Internet. But if you pick the right names um, over the multi-year period, you did quite well. It's about avoiding the euphoria and, and looking at the true fundamentals. 
Are you tilting, it's a dangerous question for Invesco, are you tilting active management or passive management at this time? I think it's both. Um, but in an environment where you're seeing a broadening out, you should see more opportunity in, in active management. And what you what you would expect as you move into you know the next phase. So when we think about a new market cycle, a recovery phase of a cycle, that's when smaller caps do really well. That's when international does really well. And and in a lot of those places, that's where um, investors can uh, can really take advantage of active. I also see a lot of money going into money markets. We've all seen that. And, you know, personally, I think yields start to come down over time. So there is reinvestment risk there. And I would I would advise investors to look further out in duration or to look further out in things like munis or corporate bonds, where, of course, uh, active management can serve you quite well. Basically, don't fight the momentum. You said we make hay while the sun shines and we heard from Peter Shear over the weekend. Don't fight consensus in December and August. And that seems to be where we are. When does momentum stop working? I think you'll see the, uh, you know, when all of this tightening starts to find its way into the economy, you'll see the economy uh, roll over a bit, whether we're going to call it a recession or just a slowdown remains to be seen. But, you know, markets go through these phases. And, you know, right now, this is a market that is is feeling like a recovery trade. It's probably not the recovery trade. It's not the beginning of the next cycle. So you'll probably give back some of this in early 2024 as the uh, as the economy starts to roll over. But what that means is the Fed pivots. And when the Fed pivots, that's when the new cycle emerges. So this is a, you know, this is still a, a recovery trade here. We're likely to see, you know, a, a pullback in, in early 2024 with the economy. But as soon as the Fed is, uh, you know, shifts stance, typically over the next couple of years, if not more, you tend to do quite well in markets. So then how do you borrow the rally and not buy it, not buy to own for the long term if you're looking to avoid some of that give back in the beginning of next year? Well, that was part of what I was talking with uh, Jonathan about with the FOMO story. It's, you know, I don't know how tactical investors want to be. I mean, if you, you know, we use we have tactical strategies that will rotate based on where you are in the regime. But if you're looking out even from here over the next few years, um, you should be invested in risk assets. If I use 1980-81 as an example, and I think I've said it on this show before, that you got a nice rally once inflation had um, peaked in March of 80. Um, the market did roll over with the, with the recession. You never went through the bottom. And again, if you had invested when uh, inflation had peaked in 80 or when the Fed was done tightening at the end of 80, you were very happy in 82, 83, 84 and beyond. So, you know, focus on the, you know, to me, it's focus on what uh, tends to move markets most. Um, end of inflation, end of tightening tends to be very good for risk assets. Brian, first in, first out. The rate hiking cycle in EM started months and months, maybe eight, nine months before the tightening cycle started in DM. We saw the rate cut over in Chile on Friday. I think Brazil is going to follow on Wednesday. Others will follow later this year. We've got an easing posture, I'll call it, coming out of China. Brian, what are the opportunities in emerging markets at the moment? Yeah, I mean, look, you want to lean into where policymakers are providing support uh, to the economy. And this is a very interesting environment. You know, investors 
didn't love EM for the prior decade is EM struggled to come out of the global financial crisis. To your point, EM leads out more accommodative. And even what you saw in the developed world, what you saw specifically with Japan on Friday, I mean, this is a very different environment where the Fed could be contemplating easing by next year um, and the major developed market central banks are still tightening, which tends to portend a weaker dollar versus our major trading partners, which we haven't seen in a long time. And and that starts to unlock some of that value that exists um, outside the United States. And, you know, investors haven't been there. They've they've avoided it. But it, it's a better backdrop for international investing than we've seen in a while, because, quite frankly, any time international participated in the last cycle, either the U.S. freezed rates or started a trade war or we got a pandemic, which uh, ended up abruptly uh, ending any type of participation from international markets. We've been burnt a few times. Brian, it's good to catch up as always and great call for the year so far. Brian Levitt there of Invesco on this equity market. Thank you, sir. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Right now, on what we've done under surveillance, looking here particularly at the Pacific Rim, Carl Weinberg joins us. He's chief economist at High Frequency Economics, but far more than that, is steeped in financial crisis on an international basis. And his notes on China and Japan have been absolutely definitive. Carl Weinberg, why hasn't the yen moved abruptly off of the verbiage and action of the Bank of Japan? Hi, good morning, Tom. Good morning, John. Good morning, Lisa. You know, the currency isn't going to move on a dime. They only uh, moved on Friday. And, and this change in policy uh, brings sets off different forces in the economy. It's not just about interest rate differentials. But if you're an investor in Japan and you're looking to deploy marginal funds, you're looking at almost an assured loss on uh, long-term JGBs right now. And if you need to have long-term assets to, off to offset long-term liabilities, you have to look abroad. So, uh, to 
a certain extent, this uh, tightening of monetary conditions or the allowance of bond yields to rise, whatever you want to call it, drives money abroad and makes the yen cheaper, which is not what your traditional interest rate theory says it ought to do in the in the terms of the currency. But I think we have to expect uh, a really mixed pattern for the yen moving forward from here. Do you? What's your scope and scale on yen move? I mean, I know you're not in the business of FX analysis, but are you looking... 150 yen or 132 yen? Well, uh, I'm not going to take a long-term position on that because I still don't know what the Bank of Japan is up to entirely. I mean, uh, we saw this widening of the band. Was this a technical adjustment just to allow uh, more uh, trading both ways in the bond market and to uh, improve uh, uh, trading conditions for people who have to be in the market? Or was it the first step in an actual tightening of monetary conditions? It's not at all clear. As Lisa pointed out, we did the calculations that show that if we had the stock, if we had the bond market fully adjust to the increase in the band, that the hit to portfolios economy-wide would be about 4.5% of GDP. That was our math. And right now, we have a huge profit on the Nikkei that if we were to call the end of the fiscal year today and all those bond yield, all that bond yield headroom were used, we'd see kind of a wash between gains on equities and losses on bonds. That's a one-shot deal, and I think that Ueda-san is hoping to take advantage of that, hoping that the stock market will continue its rally and offset losses on the bond market and give him this little step toward normalization. But if that's it, if it's, if it's half a percentage point and that's it, then there's no impact on the yen whatsoever beyond the next couple of weeks, and there's no basis to look for a major move. We were also talking about China and how much willingness there will be by the People's Bank of China and just in general from authorities to support an economy that's flirting with deflation, outright deflation. Do you think that they can come in with something that can avoid more protracted deflation over a sustained period of time? Well, good morning, Lisa. You know, China's inflation has been nothing much to talk about for a long time. We've been talking about sub-2% inflation, except in times when pork prices have been stalling. So we're at the low end of a distribution, but we're not nearly in a deflationary range. The signs of deflation are not there in China in particular. The, the monetary aggregates are still growing, although not as fast as they'd like them to grow. And wages are still going up. So uh, we're not. I'm not particularly scared about uh, deflation in China. What concerns me more is that of a deep recession in China that might have impacts on the stability of the regime, on the stability and constancy of economic policy. And uh, that's where I think uh, the big risks are. China, unlike the Western economies, doesn't respond to interest rate cuts, uh, to the normal kinds of consumer spending or depressing policies that we see in uh, the Western world, because most of their growth is driven by investment and not by consumer spending. And most of that investment is planned by the state. The problem with their growth engine is that they've run out of really lucrative investment projects, and that's causing their growth rate to slow down on a secular basis. And that's what they have to try to offset by switching by switching the source of growth from investment to consumption. And that requires a careful mix of policies. Just quickly, Carl, how likely do you think it is that there is some sort of deeper recession within China? 
Well, I think that a recession is probably not the right word. It would be what we would call a growth recession, where growth doesn't occur fast enough to absorb people who still want to come from the farms into the city and to generate the increases in income that people want to see. I think that's the scenario we're looking at in China, subpar growth. So we'll see growth this year, maybe one or two or three percent is our forecast, about three percent. But that's way short of what they want, which is in the five to six percent range. And that's a problem for policymakers. Carl, thank you for your insight. It's always valuable. Carl Weinberg there of High Frequency Economics on China and what's developing at the moment. Right now, we will go to the red bars. They're in the New York Times poll today, which is front and center as we stagger into August of 2023. It is in August of a Republican debate. Wendy Schiller joins us now, director of Taubman Center for American Politics Policy at Brown University. She's familiar uh, with the electoral process. Wendy, have you ever seen anything like this? We got a guy with various legal challenges, completely dominating a party, 54% Trump, the governor of Florida, 17 percent, and everybody's barely a heartbeat as, as well. Does Trump own the party? Uh, it looks like he owns the party right now, and he's being treated like the incumbent president. You know, how dare you challenge him? I think, you know, if you're the opposition, the takeaway from this poll is you have to go after Trump directly. I think they've all resisted it, particularly DeSantis. He sort of runs around it, but he's got to go right at Trump. Some of the comments that they solicited in the poll after their sort of standard answers were Trump's right. a fighter. Trump's a fighter. That's exactly what they want to see from the other candidates. Are you willing to do what this guy does? Um, and the other warning sign, I think, for the party as a whole is that there be, seems to be a bunch of Republicans that are willing to throw out the rules. Right. So if Trump loses a few primaries or it's really close and he claims they're rigged, he could undermine the entire Republican Party nomination <laughs> system. Uh, so I think that the comments are really important to look at in this poll. Long ago and far away, Jimmy Carter, the governor of Georgia, walked down the stairs of an airplane in Rochester, New York, and shook Midge Costanza's hand. And we all said, who is this guy? Who's the Jimmy Carter this time around? Of the 2%, the 3%, Pat Scott, Haley, Ramaswamy, Christie, who's the Jimmy Carter of the moment? Right now, I think it's Tim Scott. I think that Tim Scott has a lot of the qualities that would appeal to the base um, if they uh, could get themselves out of a sort of cult of personality of Trump uh, and, you know, out of the sort of avenging his loss in 2020. Uh, I think he has a lot of appeal, particularly among evangelicals or conservative Christian voters in the South and can peel away, theoretically, some portion of that African-American base, just as George Bush sort of peeled away a considerable portion of Latino base, but also a little bit of the African-American base. Uh, and I think that's someone you should pay attention to. I think you, the political observer, should pay attention to. And a Trump-Tim Scott ticket would be a very interesting dilemma, I think, for the Democratic Party. You said that it, one of the things that candidates have to do is go straight after the former President Trump. And yet Will Hurd, uh, formerly of Texas representative, came out and actually did that in Iowa. And he was booed off the stage. What makes you think that it will be received by the voters? Well, the question is who's going to these rallies and you know, who's actually going to vote six months from now. And do you set the stage, like Chris Christie's trying to do in some ways, of saying, I can fight just as hard for what you believe in and I'm willing to take your boots. I mean, I'm willing to take anything you throw at me, but I'm going to stay in the race. <clears throat> and I think that's 
you know, if it's possible for them to do in terms of financial contributions. The other problem with this poll for DeSantis is that it will scare donors, right? That this guy can't get traction. What do we do? And the Republicans have to be careful about the Senate in 24. The House, this helps, right? Generating Trump fans going out the door for polling is good in gerrymandered districts for the House Republicans. But for the Senate, they lost in 2022, mainly because of Trump-endorsed candidates. The same fate awaits them in 2024. So this is going to send, I think, some shutters through the entire Republican Party. Today, we're going to get some disclosures uh, from the former President Trump's campaign in terms of the Political Action Committee and how some of the money has been spent. The expectation is that millions, tens of millions of dollars have been spent on legal bills for Trump, as well as his associates. Will this be a problem for the donors, or has this been sort of understood that this is sort of the fight that they're trying to get behind as part of the fight that he is launching for president? Lisa, this is a, a, a sort of a, a watching technical question for people who care about campaign rules. Uh, but Trump has made no you know, bones about soliciting money for him, for his campaign, for his legal defense. It is all about him. It is not about the Republican Party. It is about him. So nobody will be surprised. And the donors, particularly small donors, don't seem to care. They're in it for him. He's their team. They're not defecting from him. The problem is, the, you know, the majority of voters or the people who can win an election for you have defected, particularly independents, but some slice of the Republican Party. And that, for the general election, is really a tremendous problem, uh, you know, facing the Republican Party going to 24. So, you know, the voters in the Republican Party don't care how Trump spends the money. They're giving it to support him. Can we talk about the voters in the Democratic Party and how they might view the president's handling of his situation with his son at the moment, Wendy? There are plenty of allegations over the last year about his business dealings. What have you heard of, on that recently? Well, I mean, I think Democrats face an enthusiasm gap. We've seen that. Uh, Biden's getting a little bit better. You know, his pool rate is going a little bit higher. You know, things are better than people thought they might be, particularly with the economy. Um, and some of the policies that he enacted are starting to show to voters. So he's got a little bit of momentum. He said flat out he wouldn't pardon his own son. Um, this deal that fell apart, the plea deal, I think in the end, politically, that's an advantage for Joe Biden. Uh, I think um, people were skeptical of that deal, and it could be a lot liability for him a year from now uh, among Democratic voters who don't get the same deal from prosecutors. So I think in how this plays out for Hunter Biden, if there's any punishment that people view as legitimate, I think that actually helps Joe Biden. Personally, obviously not. But politically, I think it does. Wendy Schiller of Brown University. Wendy, thank you. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. But we need to talk to Doug Cass because he is a conduit to Kate Upton. And the real question here is, does Mrs. Verlander, does she decide (laughs) that we need to stay in New York for their daughter's well-being and schooling? Doug Cass, is Kate Upton the one that will decide whether Mr. Verlander goes to the Mets to the dreaded New York Yankees? We we do need some help. these, speaking of pitches these days, I feel like uh, Luis Severino. <laughs> he had an outstanding year in 2022. I think his one loss record was seven yeah. and three. An Aaron run average of three ten this year. He's two and five with an ERA of seven fifty. I feel that way being bearish on yeah. the markets. What I see here, Doug, and you and I have had such a joy talking the history of the game. I find it fascinating how the end of July is maybe the tension of what we felt the first week of September was not too long ago. Do you think the new expanded wild card has been good for the sport? Oh, gosh, I don't know. It seems um, it's when all the trades occur at yeah. the end of July because this is um, finally a resolution of where you stand. You know, Stevie Cohen's a very good example, his, his move last week with his pitcher. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see. Just one more question on baseball. <laughs> what, are the, what do the Yankees do? I mean, I don't get it. I mean, I just, uh, I, you know. Uh. No, I have to talk both about the Yankees and being wrong-footed on the market. Let's, well, well, let, let's make this easier. Does the GM go? Mr. Cashman, does the GM go? I, to said, Ca- I said to you last year I thought he should go, you know. Yeah, okay. You know, okay. I was pals with with his dad, who passed okay. away, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and Brian's a good man, but maybe it's time for a change. Yeah, the uh, the your agent says, okay, it's time now to talk the market. <laughs> Doug Cass, you've been wrong-footed <laughs> on the market, as you put it. Uh, we've all been there. We all have a humility of how hard this is. How do you go about identifying that this per- is perhaps a true bull market? Well, as I said, there's nothing more humbling than being on the wrong side of a trending market, especially one if, if one approaches the investment business as I do with intensity, as I do with the New York Yankees. So I'm 0 for 2 this year <laughs> uh, with a pretty high ERA. And that's been the case of the last couple of months. Um, look, uh, two quotes come in mind, come to mind. Um, the first one, I think, was from uh, Emerson. He said, in life, our greatest glory is not never failing, but in rising up every time we fail. Um, I did a terrible job in, well, I did a good job in expecting a strong first half, uh, unlike the consensus, and we were positioned for that, but I did not expect the rally of the last three months on top of the 10% rally ahead of it. Um, the good, I, I, I think there's another quote Howard Marks made in um, taking the temperature of the market, you know, one of his great oak tree commentaries mm-hmm. last month. He said, remember that in extreme times, uh, the secret to making money lies in being contrary, not being a conformist. Um, and um, to my credit, um, you know, we, we think that risk control is an essential part of managing money, especially 
when one is as wrong-footed as I have been. Uh, indeed, in the remarkable advance of the last couple of months, we have been net short, but we didn't lose net money in the last well, Give me a number here. I mean, you know, we, I don't like to talk numbers with, with people a lot, but when you say you've been pouted the market, I would suggest with your risk management, it's not as painful as some people. Are you down like single digits or is it double-digit agony? Uh, we're up for the year. <clears throat> And as we were last year when everyone was suffering, and as I said in the rally of the last three months, we're, we're even. So uh, We're not even on the year. We're yeah. even during that period, which is a good, good example of the importance, which a lot of people don't discuss, even you guys sometimes, is risk control. I know Allison Schrager did a, a, a wonderful uh, conversation in the prior segment about reward, take, uh, you know, controlling reward versus risk. Um, and a lot more, um, um, a lot more yep. discussion should be made about that. So, with hindsight, Doug, what do you think you and your team got wrong over the last three months? I think what happened is um, I underestimated um, the animal spirits and uh, the fear of missing out um, in a market that has tra- changed structurally and now is dominated by products and quantitative products and strategies um, that uh, utilize volatility um, um, uh, more than ever before um, and price momentum. And these strategies know everything about price and nothing about value. And it's in periods like this um, uh, I think that's what that's what bulls like myself and Mike Wilson uh, mis- misunderstood. What have you taken away, if anything, f- from this earnings period that we're kind of just smack in the middle of right here? Um, look, I see. Um, I think I see basically earnings as they always are in seventy percent of the cases, uh, slightly better than um, guidance, which is you know. Um, by design, by investor relations departments, and also they're slightly higher than revised lower of six months ago earnings expectations. But we see um, the emergence of a number of concerns, not the least of which is uh, sluggish growth and prickly inflation, what I call slugflation, as opposed to stagflation. And you're seeing it now in agricultural commodities, the CRB foodstuff food stock index at a 52-week high. Look at the price of eggs, of bacon, of urea, of ammonium, um, uh, and obviously, of course, oil, which um, is now up, um, I believe, uh, has its first five-week win streak in a a year and a half or two years, and now is above its 50-week moving average. Um, These are all... I I looked at... Look at orange juice. Orange juice, which we drink... In the, oh, you drink Tang, <laughs> phony orange juice. But normal people, Tom, drink orange juice, and oh. it's up 24% in the month of July. And people, uh, look, the bond market has gotten the clue. The uh, 10-year is up uh, 12 bips in the last week, up another three or four bips uh, today, and they figured it out. But the market hasn't because of, uh, in my view, market structure, animal spirits, and FOMO. I think that's and the other thing is, yeah. the other thing is that w- what we've also realized um, is that the U.S. economy has grown far less interest rate sensitive right. than the consensus or our monetary policies 
policy authorities uh, suspect. So fundamental to my and the cornerstone of my bearish view is that we have higher for longer policy and our rates are going to remain high. And we have, as a result, uh, a paper-thin equity risk premium, which portends valuation risk, reduces the margin of safety, expands mm. the downside risk for stocks relative to the upside reward, and extends right. the advantage of credit credit over equity. Yeah, very quickly here, uh, uh, Doug. What everyone knows is there's a massive overweight on tech. How does that end? Well, it ends it ends badly. You know, I facetiously said in a in a in a column I wrote on Real Money Pro. Pro that I sent to you that AI is for now an elegant parlor trick, um, <laughs> with few uh, accumulating near-term revenue benefits and a lot of increased costs. Yeah, um, we will recall the internet created the dot-com boom, but that didn't keep the uh, Nasdaq going down 83 percent in the next three years, mm-hmm. beginning uh, in late 2000. Um, so I think that. The greatest overvaluation in the market is technology. You have to remember, remember we were buying Amazon, um, uh, Alphabet, um, Facebook at the end of last year. Remember the tax selling, how these stocks right. were being thrown out and no one wanted them. The, you know, this is the only business where people are confident in view right. and can be terribly wrong Right. And come back and are confident view again. I mean, yeah. the bulls today are much like the yeah. bulls at the end of uh, 2020, yeah. 2021, who are bearish yeah. in October well, of go. It reminds you of the Yankees in Tampa in uh, February. Doug Cass, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate that. That was Seabreeze uh, Partners. Right now, and this is a joy after what we saw in Belgium to bring in Zach Brown. He's the chief executive officer of McLaren Racing. And to give you an idea of the breadth, the scope, the scale of his history with racing, he actually was in the cars doing it at a very young age. And he's someone that also has a great amount of Americana, including a precious letter from George Washington to someone arguing about the travesty of Benedict Arnold. This is a, this is a renaissance man, uh, John, running things at the August. You told me McLaren was special. It's very special. Yeah. And it's a special opportunity to catch up with Zach Brown of McLaren Racing. Zach, wonderful to catch up with you, sir. A difficult weekend compared to the success in Hungary and at Silverstone in the UK as well. Zach, can you catch these Red Bulls this year? Can you get a win? Well, we're trying. We're trying. We need them to blink. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of racing uh, left to go. We're, we're getting closer. Uh, unfortunately, no one's close enough yet. But uh, I would think a win is uh, possible uh, in the second half of the season. It's certainly our goal. What is it about the setup of the car, the developments that you've made over the last several races, Zach, where you think you've made progress? And what kind of races on the calendar do you think we can see that a little bit more? Uh, aerodynamics, you know, it's very much an aerodynamics game. Of course, you have to have two great drivers, which we have, and you have to have great pit stops and reliability, but it is an aero game, and that is where we've made our biggest gains. Uh, we started that in uh, Austria. I think some of the quicker tracks, so I would think uh, Austin, uh, Japan, we should be strong. Abu Dhabi, we should be strong. It's the slow corners we don't like, but who likes going slow anyway? So, uh, but that's where we need to improve. 
and and we've got some more developments coming, but so does everyone in Formula One. So it is right. definitely a development race. Zach, I watched every minute of Belgium, and somewhere in the vicinity of lap 31 or 33, there was Zach Brown talking to a 22-year-old kid quietly who had gone out of the race early as well. Oscar Piazzi is 22. At 14, he was basically a professional. That's all these kids do is drive, drive, drive. What were you saying to Oscar Piastri at lap 33 there after he bombed out of the Belgium race? Yeah, I told him a couple things. One, uh, don't worry about it. You know, he had such a great Saturday. He's having a great season. So uh, these guys feel like they uh, not only let themselves down, but the team down and so they need to know we're all in this together we win together we lose together and then also we had a pretty difficult race with our arrows set up so at that particular moment uh, Lando was going backwards until we kind of strategically got him in a better place so I also told him he probably wasn't missing having too much fun at the moment just being a little bit lighthearted and um, you know these things happen he's done a a fast fantastic job all year explain to our american audience including a dummy like me what did bruce mclaren give you what does the mclaren name mean to john farrow and auto racing it uh i mean it's he's he was a legend he was all about uh innovation uh he was a driver he would uh, was a designer so you know we're very proud to uh uh, wear the papaya colors, which was Bruce's uh, colors back in the day. And that was actually done so he could have more standout on on television back in the black and white days. And uh, so he's an inspiration to, to all of us. And he, he was a racer. He was an innovator. He was a designer uh, and, of course, a, a, a team owner. So uh, we're the second most successful team in the history of Formula One and something that we're very, uh, very proud of. And we were also the only team to have won what's called the Triple Crown, which is the 24 Hours of Le Mans and the Indy 500, and of course, the Monaco Grand Prix, and it's something that we can hope to do again in the future. Zach, as you try to plow further into the U.S., this is something that Formula One has tried to do, is I'm learning, and I'm one of the people who are becoming the adopters uh, here. Where is the distinction, the overlap between Formula One and NASCAR? How competitive is that at a time when NASCAR already has such a a cult following in the U.S., (laughs) and Formula One has a very different type of energy coming from Europe? Yeah, I think they're they're complementary. They're they're different. You know, they're they're probably uh, have almost the same similarities between uh, baseball and and basketball because uh, they're they're radically different as far as the type of of racing. So uh, uh, a little bit of a different demographic and, and psychographic. Obviously, Formula One is is very global, where NASCAR's uh, a domestic uh, sport. But I think all motorsports uh, help each other. So I, I think there's uh, room for both, uh, including uh, IndyCar, which is much more like uh, Formula One. It's just awesome to see how big Formula One has got in America as quickly as it has. And I think um, Netflix obviously has a lot to do with that, as does the Austin Grand Prix, Miami Grand Prix, and the uh, uh, soon-to-come uh, Vegas Grand Prix, which is going to be off the charts. As a lot of purists probably feel that the Netflix series perhaps inaccurately reflects some of the drama or the lack thereof, as Max Verstappen, uh, as John was pointing out, has noted, as an American who has been in a sport that really has been dominated by European presence, how does a sport have to change to really become as popular in the U.S.? 
Well, I think it is changing and a lot of credit to uh, Liberty who acquired the sport, you know, five, six years ago. I think Netflix is a great example. That would have probably not happened uh, with previous ownership because the, the industry, the sport would not have wanted the cameras on the inside of the sport. It was kind of a wasn't a, an inclusive sport. And I think now we're very digitally savvy. We've embraced the fan. We're all about the fan and things like Netflix, where we're showing people about our great sport. And I've seen some of those comments, which uh, are a little disappointing because I think they're a bit um, inaccurate in, in the sense of we're capturing our great sport. When Netflix puts together the content, they'll sometimes pick and pull because they're trying to illustrate a, a point. So we as the racers will see, for instance, oh, that was a clip of our pit crew from Monaco, but they're showing us in Italy, but it kind of doesn't change the narrative. So I think we're a little bit too close to it. And because Formula One's all about the details, we get a little bit wound up when the details a little bit inaccurate. Zach, tell me how the commercial agreements have developed over the last couple of years. Let's just say, for example, we wanted to put Bloomberg surveillance on the side of Lando's car. Let's just say. Let's just say. What's what's the cost of that now compared to what it was? Several years ago, Zach, how much has the price of that increased? It's probably gone up uh, twofold in, in five years. And and I think what's great, though, is the exposure has gone up fourfold. Um, so, yeah. you know, it's all about value for, for money. But the uh, demand, I mean, if we look at our our partners, right. Google, Cisco, Dell, Goldman Sachs, I mean, these companies were not considering Formula One five years ago, and, and now you've got the world's greatest companies right. joining those that were already there. So it's it's been an unbelievably yeah. commercial success. Uh, Zach, real quickly, and, and by the way, you know, John and I think we can piece together $5,000 to get Bloomberg surveillance <laughs> on the side of the car. You guys are always tweaking the cars. Now, you've got a summer break like Pharaoh has a summer break. I mean, John's taken off all of August into September. You go from Belgium to Netherlands. Is your car going to be tweaked and different for Netherlands, or do you actually take a real European holiday? No. Well, a bit of both. But, you know, everything's about advanced planning. So we will have uh, new bits, if you'd like, on our car in Holland. But those have already been developed. The shutdown is for the technical team is mandatory. We can't even send an email. So I'm going to go to America wow. and spend time with our IndyCar team because I, I you can't keep me away from a racetrack. But no, we are. It is a very genuine. You cannot touch the race car for two weeks. Uh, you can't even communicate about the race car, but that's all planned in. So our developments are already that ready so cool. for Holland. I'm having that written into my contract I was going to say, is everybody, <laughs> Zach, I love it. Brad, Qantas, Qantas, Zach, did great. you just hear that? Zach Brown of McLaren Racing. Zach, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. And good luck for the rest of the season. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern. On Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.